let's continue our <coughs> consideration of some of the ways in which we can perhaps uh, get hold of the wrong end of the stick, so to speak, with imaginal practice, grasp it in the wrong way, relate to it, and conceive of it um, in ways that actually bring dukkha that isn't necessary. Uh, and so opening up that awareness, what do we need to pay attention to, what do we need to consider, what do we need to take care of, etc., in order that this uh, yana, this vehicle of soul-making, <coughs> uh, works for us, does, uh, is actually able to do what we intuit that it can do, and perhaps even more. So let's um, continue and pick up uh, where we left off in the last part of this talk with the whole issue of uh, realism, reification and identification um, with and in, relating in, in relation to images um, and what we sense with soul. <clears throat> in, in this part of the talk, and, and perhaps uh, depends how eventually these talks get divided up into parts, but certainly in this part and in perhaps the next, I don't know, maybe even a couple of parts, I don't, I don't know, um, I certainly want to offer some hopefully helpful advice um, regarding this whole question of what we need to care for and how, how we can actually make sure that we're not just increasing dukkha through trying to engage in imaginal practice, how we can actually uh, uh, prevent that, if you like. So, part of what I hope to do is, is yes, offer some hopefully helpful advice. And another part or, or strand of what I want to do is less about me telling you how it is, uh, me having the answers and disseminating them, but rather, um, I think it some of what I want to do is more akin to tr just trying to open up some questioning, open up um, the discourse around uh, certain aspects of existence. Um, if you like, I want to in part ponder out loud with you without having the answers myself. Because some of what I want to touch on, as I mentioned in an earlier talk, some of what I want to touch on regarding ontology and epistemology, etc., and how that weaves into uh, this paradigm of soul-making, this path of soul-making, and the practices of sensing with soul, some of all of that um, regarding ontology and epistemology, it, it is perhaps not given to human beings, and perhaps never will be given to human beings, to know definitive, definitively proved answers to these questions of ontology and epistemology. They're kind of, as I said, they're open questions. And how we relate to the impossibility of that, of arriving at some final answer uh, regarding ontology and epistemology that satisfies everyone in every realm of existence, uh, regarding every realm of existence. Um, the fact of that, how we relate to that fact of impossibility is 
either we make it interesting and fertile, or we just close it close it down. It becomes a barren wasteland, uh, an area that is not um, supporting soul making, and that itself is not opened through soul making. So some of uh, what I'd like to go into, as I said, is, is more, you know, hopefully some helpful advice, and some is really just opening up a discussion, pondering, wondering out loud with you. So I already said that uh, when I uh, kind of survey a little bit the problems we get into with um, sensing the soul and imaginal practice and all that, is that in in many ways one can say that realism is, uh, if you like, of one kind or another, realism is the most common problem, and in some ways it's the sort of... um, it's at the root of other problems. A problem or a difficulty one encounters or a way that dukkha is created might seem at first that it's not to do with realism, but one can some kind of rea- realism going on, but we can kind of um, expose or trace it back to uh, underneath that, so to speak, um, this or that inclination or way of relating or whatever it was. Um, there was there was some kind of realism going on. So in that sense, it's the kind of most basic as well as the most common problem. And included in that, uh, or the kinds of problems, uh, the kinds of ways it spins out or tangles a web for us, is, and I think I mentioned some of these, um, we, we, something in us concludes this image or this sense that I have of, of whatever I'm sensing with soul, it means this or that about me. And uh, either we get puffed up by that because we're... Um, believing that to be true, or we worry about ourselves, we worry about our sanity, we worry about our goodness or badness, we worry about all kinds of things. So one way is it means this or that about me. Another possibility is um, I perceive this such and such imaginally, or uh, whatever it is, this image, imaginal figure, and then and then we take it as indicating this is what will happen in my life. This is what will unfold um, in the material world, etc. Or uh, we take it as meaning, this is what I should do. And in the sort of uh, squeezing of a sense of duty, there's too much concretization, too much literalization of the image. And so what I should do becomes too clumsy and clunky and too plainly uh, translated into life. So those are some of the ways, some of the obvious ways and immediate ways that uh, kind of perspectives of realism, usually unconscious, um, in other words, we don't really quite understand that we're in the grip of realism. Those are some of the ways in which it can manifest. One of the sort of symptoms of realism is that it often um, goes with a kind of uh, pendulum motion, a kind of almost violent swinging from one extreme to the other, it seems to me, in general. So realism tends, um, in general, to, to lead to kind of swings in view, big Diametrically and polarized, diametrically opposed, polarized swings in view and or opinion, and also the sense of things. So, for example, 
between, um, if you like, a kind of self-elevation on one side and then swinging to a self-deprecation or self-abasement on the other side. It, or, in other language, swinging between a kind of grandiosity of, of, of the self and a kind of, let's say, inner critic putting down of the self. Um, related to that, so, so realism will tend to, to, to pick up those extremes and believe in them and swing between them without much in, in, in the middle. Um, we're either pumping ourselves up and believing that kind of reification of grandiosity about ourselves, or the opposite. We believe in our uh, worthlessness, failure, badness, uh, etc., of the, uh, the perspective and the inner critic. Similar and related to that is the swing, again, um, dependent on realism between what we might call um, mania and depression, to use kind of um, words from clinical psychology. Um, the sort of high of mania and the low of depression. And with that, a believing in uh, a concretized, uh, a rarefied self-view, a rigid identity in either extreme there, and also uh, a believed in rigidified worldview that goes with either the extreme of mania or the extreme of depression, or some kinds of depression, most kinds of depression. Um, so that's, again, these swings are kind of, it indicators that we haven't really found that territory of the middle way. If the, if I look at my kind of history and my experience, and I, I just see that swing between this pendulum swinging between these poles, it's a signal that something around realism and the imaginal middle way, etc., uh, needs uh, more opening up for us, more vivification for us. Uh, I'll put this in as well, it's related to this, um, but what I also notice is a kind of swinging between what we might call <coughs> realist, religious sort of dogma or religious fundamentalism, and on the one hand, and a realist, if, if we might say secularist dogma or fundamentalism on, on, the, one, on the other hand. And so this is quite uh, an, an interesting uh, thing to uh, to witness as well, that we person can be so entrenched in some kind of um, religious dogma, really fundamentalism in the sense of this is this is true. I insist that X is real and true, whatever that religious belief is. And a little time later, sometimes just uh, a year or whatever later, they're just as entrenched in what we might call a realist, secularist uh, dogma of fundamentalism, and denying the reality of what they used to believe in and insisting on the reality of a more so-called secularist uh, view. Um, Or there's some very uh, kind of, if there's not this kind of pendulum swing there, then there's this kind of very awkward and strange sort of... um, coexistence of the two. Uh, so one's sort of an ardent secularist as well as having all kinds of um, strangely superstitious um, beliefs or attractions um, to the magical, the mystical, the spiritualist, etc. Um, so these these kinds of patterns of uh, you know swinging pendulum between kind of extremely entrenched um, views, opinions, and senses of things is 
is a kind of symptom, as I said, that, uh, that something about realism needs needs a bit more uh, turning of the soil, a bit more opening up, a bit more space, a bit more investigation. So, in a way, those kinds of manifestations are uh, of, of of realism, and the problems they cause are a little kind of more obvious. And the answers with respect to them are also, I would say, a little bit more clear-cut. There's a whole realm, uh, at least to my current thinking, there's a whole realm of um, questions uh, or manifestations, uh, questions around, as I said, ontology and epistemology, but but um, manifestations of what possibly is a kind of reified identification or 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 general reification, um, questions around that that are actually more subtle. Um, so, for example, am I actually attached to a certain image? I can feel it's soul-making for me, it's beautiful, it's fertile, it's all, all of that's meaningful. Um, I sense the divinity, um, etc. Um, I even sense the, the middle way, but it the middle way with respect to it, and the theatre quality with respect to it, but is there some still kind of level of entrenchment or identification? So I'm going to share something um, from my own history. Um, something I realise in sharing this that I'm um, perhaps making myself vulnerable um, to accusations from certain people who have certain perspectives um, that uh, really all, all this that I'm sharing is just a sure indication of some kind of psycho, some kinds, probably plural, of uh, various kinds of psych psychological pathology on my part. Um, so I, I want to take that risk um, in the hope that this is helpful. Uh, Partly because you might see in, in my sharing a lot of the detail here, you might see not, not exactly the same uh, images operating, but maybe you can translate the kind of general framework of what I'm talking about into maybe some of what you see in the way you relate to the images that are really meaningful and the fantasies that are really um, close to your soul that run through your life. Um, and I also want to illustrate, uh, for me, that th th there's always a questioning. Um, here's this conceptual framework. I still want to be open to questioning it. Here's this um, image, um, uh, or the way, I, or the manner of my relationship to a certain image or fantasy, and I still want to be open to questioning that. Um, questioning, how is my relationship with that? What do I think about that? Um, is, it, is, is there another view possible? Is there another conceptual framework possible? Um, so, in the spirit of that openness to questioning, and, uh, and with the hope that it's all helpful, um, it's a little bit involved. Let me, let me try and uh, take my time and, and uh, unfold it. So, uh, some, some time ago, quite a little while ago, um, I was talking actually with Catherine and um, Anne one night, and we were inquiring into, and I can't remember what it was that, that brought this up, that made it sort of present for me. We were inquiring into a certain kind of pain that arises uh, for me, for my soul, that's related to, very much entwined with um, 
we could say it's the pain of certain kinds of loneliness that come up um, often, often for me, um, or have come up in the past, often for me over my life, around um, much of what we might call my the, the creative work that I um, have done or, or that I do. So that might be um, in, in music when I was a composer or um, uh, writing poetry or, um, or also in teaching Dharma, um, especially the, the pain around where things are a little bit unusual in terms of what's you know, being composed or, or the teachings that are being um, uh, constructed or expressed, um, and it may stretch um, sort of boundaries that are then uh, current or, or limits of, of the ways people tend to conceive this or that. Um, so the image that's kind of um, that that had been alive for me for many years, and through through many of these different phases of sort of creative or artistic work, whatever you want to call it, um, it was very powerful. It's a powerful image for me. Uh, it, it's not something that sounds particularly dramatic, perhaps, but it, it's powerful. It's powerful for my soul. Um, a lot of inspiration, a lot of beauty, and also this kind of poignancy that it was it wasn't free of suffering in the usual sense. And it's what we might call an image of um, creative aloneness, or um, creative loneliness. Actually, more usually, rather than just creative aloneness, creative loneliness, creative loneliness. So the, the dukkha of loneliness wrapped up in an image that was also very powerful, deep, m- meaningful, etc., fertile. So the image of essentially um, working alone, um, often working very hard, um, uh, in, in the image as well, and then, then in the perception that tended to come out of that image, the, Im- the, the perception of not being understood as fully as I would like. Um, and in that, also occupying a somewhat, uh, a somewhat, f- being a somewhat far out figure, somewhat sort of liminal, um, at the edge, if you like, of any community where, where is a musical community, artistic community, a, um, a social community, a dharma community, um, as well as in the larger culture, the larger culture of our society. Um, so that was an element of this, um, not just of the image, but also of the particular kind of pain, as I'll try and explain, that, that was kind of wrapped up in, woven into the image. Also, the the sense in the image of having to sort of do battle. You know, you sense this uh, echoing and being echoed of the warrior image that I've shared, the lone soldier image that I shared many times in the past. Um, so battling sometimes with with the very people that I'm uh, that are listening to whatever it is or reading or, or whatever, um, battling in in some sense um, certain views or or about what 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 uh, art is or dharma is or this or that or battling with authority figures, sometimes battling with both. Um, and so having to battle to kind of uh, express, manifest, bring into being what wants to come through me creatively. So, again, I'm sharing this. It, these, are, these are images that are very powerful, very close to my soul, 
uh, you know, close in, close in to me, and I'm aware of the, you know, how they could be perceived um, from certain uh, psychological paradigms. So Catherine and I were talking about this and kind of inquiring around this whole constellation of images or pattern pattern with regard to certain images, and and uh, and I realised as we were doing it, I realised a couple of things. One was that as we were inquiring, I was sort of assuming a little bit or fearing, in fact, that this inquiry. Um, had a kind of agenda and adopted a perspective which was presuming that it would be better if the loneliness weren't there. In other words, the loneliness is a signal that something is wrong. Uh, Something is being wrongly related to or uh, over-identified with or whatever. Um, Presumption also that the image these images of whatever we call creative aloneness, aloneness or creative aloneness, they need transforming or they need healing. Um, or they need to be held differently so that my feelings and also my choices in behavior in relation to others in, in the larger community, so that they can be different um, and more kind of as they ought to be. So in other words, there's this kind of uh, unspoken pressure in the inquiry. My fear was that there might be an unspoken pressure in the inquiry coming from the culture, from myself, from whoever, um, that um, was, was, was pushing, actually there's something wrong here, this needs to be different. And in the approach to the image, we want to transform the image or relate to it differently or whatever. And the second thing I realized uh, or uh, was that there was a subtle um, concern or fear of, of losing two aspects um, of this whole constellation of images, of this whole imaginal network that had become um, very precious to me and to my soul. Um, so somewhere in my being there was a slight... Uh, concern, if you like, or fear, really, let's call it fear, um, that if the lonely aspect of the image goes, um, or actually if any aspect of the image goes, if that's taken away, it's like, let's just cut off the pathological part, let's just cut off the dukkha part and we'll leave the creative part. But actually, there was this concern that if the lonely aspect of the image goes, or or actually if any aspect of the image goes, um, then something of an integrated whole has been destroyed. Because the image is actually of lonely creative expression. Uh, lonely creative work, struggle, toil, etc. It's not just The image is not just of creativity with a sort of um, optional extra uh, to be, that could be added on or not of um, loneliness. Um, or, or even just, even just aloneness. So the concern was that I might lose actually all the image, and in losing the image, I would, I would lose everything that goes with that image that we've talked about as aspects, elements of, of image, beauty, and love um, being inevitably kind of woven into and with any imaginal figure. Uh, so we've defined those already as elements of the imaginal as beauty there, even if that beauty is very unconventional. It's the beauty of the soldier 
um, solitarily um, fighting day after day through exhaustion, etc. Actually, it has a kind of unconventional beauty. It did to me. Um, it's a surprising kind of beauty, maybe. So beauty in the large sense, we've been through all this. Um, or an, beauty that is bigger than a narrow sense of beauty. And then also, uh, as I mentioned, the love. So with and in relationship with an image, there's a love of that image and a being loved by. And because the imaginal figure opens into uh, dimensionality and divinity, and the imaginal figure is... Um, is divine to us when, when we let it fill out. And so there is this wrapped up in the very imaginal experience is this love of and being loved of the divine and, and, the, and the, um, the gorgeousness and the grace of that. So there was a fear that if I, if I kind of surgically remove somehow the dukkha part of the image, the loneliness, that maybe I'll actually lose it all because it's an integrated whole. And it's not uh, a kind of option to lose just a part of it. So that was one thing that I uh, um, realized that I, I had a fear about, a concern about. And the second, um, that there was somewhere in me that I, I was concerned that if I... Um, I might lose uh, the actual creative capacity and inspiration that I love that is like a lifeblood to me, that is a joy of my being, that is a thrill and a, and a profound, with which I have a profound sense of duty and uh, beauty and all of that. Um, so I think it was, was it Rilke also was like, I don't, you know, I know Freud's doing all this stuff, I actually don't want to be psychoanalyzed, thank you very much, he said, because I'm afraid of losing, um, of losing the, 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 you know the the divine creative um, outflow uh, outpouring um, through that process. Um, but both of these gifts, um, the gifts of the beauty and the love, the divine beauty and the divine love and loving and being loved, and also the gift of of, of the actual um, capacity and inspiration for for the kinds of creativity that I love. Um, I've gotten used to them, I suppose, and they're, they're for my soul, deep treasures. So I realize that, and, and we're talking around it and in it and about it, but um, something in the way we're talking, it doesn't really shift much, or uh, the way I'm approaching it doesn't really shift um, or, or kind of... Um, enable a, a release in, in, in regard to this image of creative loneliness. And then at some point, and I don't know if it was later or during the discussion, so, something occurred to me. Um, over some years, there have been, uh, if you like, uh, changes, transformations, evolutions in certain images that have been very uh, kind of woven close into my soul and my soul movement and journey and expression. There have been certain changes. So that solitary soldier or warrior um, image uh, doesn't arise so much uh, these days. 
um, it's not so common. Um, sometimes that uh, solitary wanderer image um, has been uh, added to, if you like, or has a kind of extension to it uh, that, that came. Um, where that solitary wanderer is often wandering alone um, through deserts, etc., an endless kind of walking. Um, there are images sometimes where he, uh, where where he gets to rest, where um, he's taken perhaps into a tent in the desert, and somehow his uh, he receives healing, and uh, his feet are um, massaged by. Um, angelic figures. There's a kind of um, divine or angelic succor um, that's given to him through another and that addresses, the, if you like, the, the wounds and the marks of his, of his solitary wandering, his uh, bruised body, etc. So it's not that that image has disappeared or wandered, but it's, it's kind of got an, a whole other um, part to it, if you like. Um, uh, images of um, uh, a tramp or a destitute, sort of really at the edges of society, um, having nothing. Uh, then sometimes there have been images of um, this this tramp or or a, a totally impoverished person receiving um, nourishment and nectar from um, from a, a goddess or, or whatever. Um, so the, the, these very, very, um, also very touching, very beautiful to my soul. Um, a figure also um, of uh, someone who has uh, considerable more, considerably more sort of um, weight and fleshiness to their body than I do in in this life, at least um, resting. Um, in in a sort of uh, pool or um, one of those things called jacuzzis or something like that, and very at ease and very relaxed and very into resting and really not doing much um, and not sort of going anywhere and getting anywhere or um, being in this supercharged, turned-on state. Um, And that figure emerging at times as a sort of alternative to another um, archetypal image that I think I shared some years ago, um, borrowed from the, the, the myth of Horus, the Egyptian falcon god. And this falcon god I think I shared, uh, he flies, he's born, and immediately he flies swifter and further out than all other gods have before him. And there's something in that um, f- quickness and fastness and and the brilliance of it and the, and the far outness of it he goes really far out and but then um, that uh, far outness is both at times uh, you know uh, delicious exhilarating enjoyable and at times it, that exactly that far outness brings a kind of vulnerability of um, aloneness so he has all this particular power of his kind of divinity that he manifests and expresses and and enjoys and revels in and it comes at a cost comes at a cost so um, 
there's much more to the myth. It's, I, I think, very beautiful. It touches me a lot. But the point is exactly that it touches me a lot. It, it's, it's an archetype, an archetypal image that I, I can really resonate with, and, and it moves me. And quite in contrast to the, this uh, imaginal figure of this um, person just resting easily in a pool without any sense of um, uh, a duty of having to fly far and and fast and uh, and be do that uh, kind of work. Um, he has a very different kind of work. His work is to rest um, in this jacuzzi and to enjoy it and to luxuriate in it. So, in addition to the sort of um, Typical or, or images that were typical over really quite a long period of time, um, there arose gradually and slowly um, certain modifications or additions or extensions or alternatives to these images. Um, the question I had originally was, was there an attachment to or an entrenchment in um, a particular image, like the image of the solitary wanderer, like the horror smith, like the um, solitary soldier, uh, warrior um, Im- image. But in all these instances where um, the image, the original images, what could we say, um, broadened or um, supplemented with another related or a complementary image, um, in all these instances, the the extension, supplementation, complementation, whatever, came through imaginal work. It wasn't through, um, you know, challenging uh, the apparent attachment to the image, intellectually challenging it, or um, questioning um, either totally explicitly or implicitly its health from the perspectives and standards of some other. Um, you know, predetermined conceptual framework, for example, um, conventional Buddhist teachings or uh, the assumptions of contemporary psychodynamic or cognitive behavioral psychotherapies or whatever, Um, all of which presume health looks like this and have both a logos and and fantasies that run through them for what health looks like. Um, So it wasn't the kind of questioning coming from those perspectives. It wasn't a kind of intellectual challenging um, uh, there. Um, It wasn't a kind of um, logical deconstruction of the image or some kind of reductionist thing going on uh, in in the approach. None none of that, um, which which I was happy to play with, and I think that's also an important point, I want to stress that, um, part of the opening up and the willingness to, to question conceptual frames. None of that um, made any real shift in um, the certainly in the depth of power of the original images or, or in the kind of allegiance to them the way something in my soul would, would keep going back and say no there's something about that there's something about that that just feels more essential or more um, kind of close to me um, none of that had any effect really. It was only through working um, actually over and over again repeatedly with the original image itself as it arose without any um, agenda of changing or improving it. 
Yeah, so go back to that original fear I had about, about, oh, is that kind of sneaking in in this inquiry, is that I'm actually got an agenda of changing or, quote, improving this image. Um, it either came, the, the, the transformation, uh, the opening up of this image, the broadening, if you like, of these images, these related images, happened through imaginal work, not through, and not through imaginal work that was trying to change or improve the original image, or it happened through imaginal work with other images which arose organically, or um, in imaginal work sensing with soul in the sense of um, experiences of life and relationship as imaginal perceptions, um, when they naturally became images for the soul. It was only in all of that imaginal work that the original image, whatever it was, was, was you know, significantly modified, expanded, or made more flexible, if you like. So, that's one point there. Um, if we're, is, it, is, it, is it possible I'm attached to this image, or too entrenched in a certain image, or a certain, uh, certain way of, of seeing things? Um, it may be through imaginal work, going, if you like, deeper into that whole imaginal constellation, or expanding the imaginal work without an agenda that actually it's opened up, rather than necessarily just cutting off the image, although that is a possibility in some cases too. Um, so in, in our inquiry, there was, um, you know, conceptual questioning, um, and the possibility of, you know, looking at other uh, different supportive conceptual frameworks, that's that's always going to be a fruitful and indispensable element of inquiry and, and even soul-making inquiry. Um, and so we did kind of turn the soil there. It helped. Um, but to quote um, Russell Lockhart and uh, Thomas More, two, I don't know if they would call themselves Jungian or post-Jungian um, psychotherapists, I'm not sure, but whatever, they work a lot with images and the imaginal. Um, the images, according to them, as they point out, images ask for other images. This image, whatever it is that I'm uh, entertaining, that I'm relating to, that I'm struggling with, or whatever, that I'm questioning whether I'm in, entrenched uh, in, images ask for other images rather than only conceptual responses or only heart and emotional responses. You understand? The image um, asks for other images. It asks for an opening up of, of, of more imaginal work. And only those images that were, if you like, discovered by the soul, or you could say given by the soul, were effective here um, in opening things up. It wasn't like the ego's idea. I think we should throw in another image of a guy in a jacuzzi because that's really different from the falcon god guy. Um, it it uh, arose organically. It was given, if you like, by the soul uh, to the consciousness. It was, if you like, discovered by the soul rather than um, contrived, placed there in a contrived way by the ego's idea of what was right or wrong or kind of grasping too quickly at something that might be an opposite of that other image that I thought, maybe I'm entrenched in that, maybe I'm attached to that.
not for the purpose of self-improvement or healing or whatever. That was not even in the thinking, in the paradigm, in working with the images. Um, and I, and I'll return to this, I, I would doubt whether um, any of that, you know, placing an image there in a contrived way or uh, grasping at something to try and improve the self or heal or whatever, whether that would um, really be soul-making. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot in I hope you can hear there's a lot in what I'm saying you know and it brings us back to that um, question or that uh, pondering and when I talked about different fantasies of the past um, soul making uh, may well kind of overlap with what we might call healing and liberating um, but those aims and those directions are not necessarily equivalent and interchangeable. It depends how we define things. So soul-making, yes, connection, overlap with healing and liberating, but not necessarily exactly the same thing, or just we can just substitute one word for another. If we, if, you know, to open that up just a little bit now, uh, I, I'll hopefully come back to it, but um, in later talks. But you know, people often these days talk about healing. But what 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 is meant when a person talks of healing? Who or what exactly is healed? Is it um, the self of modern ego psychology? Is it um, the self that is made to? Um, adapt or uh, pretend or simulate or hide certain aspects that it wants to um, uh, show or conceal from uh, the sort of dominant, the view of the dominant culture. Um, until, so that it can be, uh, this self can be kind of acceptable, functional within the kind of scope or uh, assumptions of, of our modernist Western kind of capitalist society? Is it the self with a big S that Jung talks about? Is that what is healed? Um, is it the self as the process of the psych five psychophysical aggregates and their conditioning mechanisms in a temporarily unfolding process. Is that what, we, what is healed? Is it the soul? And if so, what does that mean? And, and similarly with, with the notion of liberation. What is liberation? Is it the liberation of Buddhism? Or if we say yes, which Buddhism? Whose Buddhism? Even if you listen to teachers just at Guy House, you can see boy, there's a, there's a pretty big range in, in the conception of what liberation is, of where the path goes, of what's possible, of what we're even really fundamentally, fundamentally addressing when we say dukkha. I'll come back to this. Even just in the teachers of Guy House, let alone go outside of Guy House. Now we tend to um, believe partly conditioned by, by past teachings that we've had, that any apparent attachment to an image, it needs liberating. We need to liberate that attachment, undo it, um, uh, find space, um, somehow 
uh, find, uh, make a movement towards non-attachment, something called non-attachment. Space, liberation, non-attachment from um, any apparent attachment to an image. That would be the traditional view of healing and liberation. So this idea instead that perhaps we have, or we might have a, a duty of some kind to an image, to an imaginal figure, to a soul-making perception, that it has somehow a hold on us, that it somehow places demands on us, um, and our soul somehow must answer, is called to answer. We're never made to answer. We're called, that's a better way of putting it, called to answer. Even if called to answer to this duty, even if there's a certain amount of dukkha, of pain and suffering, um, uh, remain wrapped up in that image without dissolving, wrapped up in the image and our relation to it. That's quite a different idea. Um, not on the face of it um, uh, compatible with the usual kind of contemporary notions of freedom and non-attachment. You know, James Hillman's quite extreme in this. He, he, he insists that pathologizing is central to soul-making. That um, in, in, in kind of stark contrast to the sort of other extreme sort of traditional Eastern spiritual views of liberation and the whole path to it, where it's just about um, more and more space and more and more freedom, um, Hillman uh, was quite, quite um, insistent in his saying, no, soul-making needs pathologizing. There's something about pathologizing, of making problems, of making dukkha, of being ensnared in dukkha that's essential to soul-making. You've got two quite um, disparate views there. I wonder, I wonder about all this, and I wonder about the possibility of really daring to explore all this and be aware of what we're, what teachings we're conditioned by what authorities, etc. Can we be bold and creative with the conceptual frameworks and the ideas uh, regarding all this? Is there a way of kind of embracing all of that into one larger conceptual framework that's kind of perhaps more subtle? So all these questions, for me, they're, they're um, you know, around soul-making, around the path of soul-making, they're, they're really, really interesting questions. Um, partly why they're so uh, interesting is that they're, and, and kind of rich and exciting, is that um, we can ask these questions um, in a way um, that also question whether there is a truth to be discovered in the answers that we may arrive at or that we may create in asking the questions. So we can ask a question without believing or going into a, uh, uh, an idea that the answers to these questions are therefore are going to be truths. Um, we can, and, and it's my, uh, I would prefer the mode, the approach, the attitude of kind of... Um, Realizing, or let's say, entertaining the idea that just just as much as we can conceive of our con questions potentially uncovering truths, 
we can view them also as creations. Um, uh, the uh, we the questions lead to creations. Um, they even lead to what we might call soul-making fictions. Um, any answers we arrive at or entertain, we can regard as creations and soul-making fictions. It's a very different idea than the answer is the truth. And with all that, we realize also, which makes the, the questions uh, so exciting to me and so rich, is that we realize that, um, along with all that, the path that then unfolds for us, um, for us or, or that we kind of create, if you like, discover and create, depends on the way we answer these kinds of questions about suffering, about attachment, about what healing means, about what liberation is, about duty or no duty, about pathology. The path that unfolds for us is dependent, as always, on, on the conceptual frameworks we, we form and adopt. So there's something here in the whole kind of much sort of meta-paradigm, if you like, that's, um, to me, as I said, so rich, so exciting, because of that uh, kind of liberation from a, a rigid notion of truth and the discovery of truth. Um, it's more, if you like, uh, um, in tune with the sort of um, the potentially, let's say, liberating uh, issues of post postmodernism or pragmatist philosophy or whatever you want to call it, rather than sort of typically modern or or even pre-modern kind of ways of conceiving. I've talked about some of that before, I think, um, but it, but to me, it makes it kind of fun and more. Exploratory and the very questioning is participatory. It's open. It's it's uh, an open field rather than a narrowing down. It's it's um, creative rather than limited, uh, as it would be in a kind of realist or or um, truth assuming approach. So I hope all that makes sense and I hope it's helpful there's quite a lot in there but again if, if we continue there are um, subtle and complex and deep questions uh, regarding the way the, the universe is regarding ontology and um epistemology um, that are kind of open um, so as as well as um, questions of identification and attachment there's these bigger questions um, around uh, ontology and epistemology so again if we trace what we're doing here so at the start of the talk we're looking partly at ways uh, in which realism can uh, lead to identification, reification, attachment in ways that aren't help, are not helpful and how that can be liberated. But there are also, as we get into this whole question of realism and dukkha more, we also realize that as well as um, uh, potential over-identification, etc., or the question of is it okay and fruitful to be identified and have that image closely woven into one's life. As well as the nuances of those and the more subtle questions 
um, nuances and more subtleties of those kind of questions. There's also um, questions regarding ontology, epistemology, cosmology, which are more subtle. So, for example, I shared, <coughs> I don't remember when, maybe maybe in the re-enchanting retreat, um, an Im- Im- sensing with soul of um, the bird song outside the window and how that uh, the the song of the birds was kind of weaving my energy body, weaving my body and healing me. A uh, very beautiful uh, image, full of, full of grace and loveliness. Um, but I I think I also shared. I hope that I shared when when I uh, when I shared that image that um, the meaning of there was a sense of, of healing and being healed by the bird song, but the meaning of healing was not closed down or limited or too narrow or put into a box. Um, similarly, sometimes you know there's angels of light that come as if they're uh, caring for me, um, breathtakingly beautiful. Um, but uh, and and also part of a healing, but. With those images, for me, it, it doesn't feel like there's a kind of there's a kind of openness to what healing means. In other words, I may well die soon. I know that. I know that I may well not survive this cancer. Um, but the he- it doesn't take away um, the sense of healing and the kind of sense of the possible reality of that healing. It's just that what healing might mean, including a physical level of healing, might not mean. Um, uh, surviving this cancer or this illness. So that if these angels of light, uh, beautiful, um, radiant, um, radiant in terms of luminosity, radiant in terms of love, if these angels of light are caring for me, watching over me, etc., um, what words to use, if they are touching me, if they are interacting with me, if they are guiding things a little bit, um, if that's the sense, the imaginal sense, if that's the sensing with soul, it still does not mean to my conception, and I don't have to work um, at this, it's just natural with that imaginal sense, with that sensing with soul, that I'm still not guaranteed a certain outcome. It actually... um, there's no guarantees that just because angelic figures of light tend to me and minister me and f- feel like they're uh, interacting with matter or the bird song or whatever, it doesn't mean that uh, there's necessarily this or that outcome. So sometimes, you know, several people say similarly, and I, I, I could say the same for myself, sometimes it feels like the, the trees care for me, or the birds care for me, but that doesn't necessarily imply an outcome that suits my ego or just what I want. I might die. And yet that takes away nothing from the beauty or the reality or the healing of of this sensing with soul. Um, in my case, or in, in case of others who've shared similarish things with me, so I certainly, th- this to me is 
again, this is partly I'm just opening doors for discussion and, and questioning. I I don't want to close a door on the possibility of the material efficacy of prayer, um, of what we might call or what we would call kind of magic, um, and or of the kind of intuition that a person might have of something that's happening in a way that we might say in the in the in the unseen realms or something. I don't want to close the door on that possibility. But for me, one, it doesn't narrow down to a sort of tight meaning of what healing means. And it doesn't necessarily at all imply an outcome that my, so to speak, my ego would be pleased with or would want. It's not, we're not really talking about that here. And that, to me, is part of the whole sense of sensing the soul. It's part of all that, um, of the, all those elements of the of the imaginal perception. So that with these kinds of senses, the trees and birds care for me, whatever it is, these angels, um, the bird song. There's I don't know how to describe it. A sort of aura or cloud or space around and imbuing the perception. That's one of well, just more space. Uh, it's not so tight. It's not so narrowly grasped in terms of what it means and what it implies and what will happen and uh, what I want. There is some kind of um, spaciousness of the middle way. The spaciousness of the razor's edge of the middle way. Some kind of questioning, some kind of acknowledgement of I don't actually know what this means fully. And sometimes, you know, it's it's actually relatively common if a person dares to let themselves sense something um, and, and sense in these ways. Sometimes a person senses, and they might have different ways they articulate it to themselves or to others. Um, the universe wants something from me. I sense the universe wants something. It might be more specific than that. Um, I sense the universe wants something, um, not just that it's something or other, I have no idea what it is, but it's, it's actually a, in this direction, <coughs> or this kind of thing, or that kind of work, or whatever. I remember reading, or hearing, or something, um, <coughs> excuse me, about Princess Diana, and uh, I really don't know much about her, or that whole thing, I was in the States for most of the time, but um, I remember reading or hearing, that she had said something to her father, if I remember rightly, something about when she was young, um, in, in her teens and early 20s, I think, and <coughs> I don't remember what age she got married, but she had said something about um, she was really um, being strict with herself not to lose her virginity. And she said to her father, I have a sense I'm going to be in the public eye. I just have this sense. And, and that that's somehow important. Um, I remember also hearing a, a, an audio, a snippet of an audio interview with John Coltrane. And he was talking about a dream he had of um, a band. It was just before he left Miles Davis's band as a sideman. 
and uh, and formed his own band for the first time um, in an ongoing way. And he said he had this dream, and it was a certain sound uh, of this quartet. And and he was very careful in, in the interviews, very sort of humble uh, person in many ways. Not, not, I don't at all want to kind of insinuate that I can see the future or anything like that, but I had heard this sound, this band, this quartet, and it was a certain sound. And if you know that the sort of what they call the classic John Coltrane quartet of his kind of middle period, it really was a certain new sound in jazz, and it was so groundbreaking and such a, I mean, for me, and I think for so many people, such a, Un- unbelievably rich and deep gift to the world what came through um, I mean him in his whole life but really that, that band in particular so I don't want to close the door on these kinds of possibilities of intuitions of, of, of prayer of what we might call magic um, but there's something if someone's too tight with this or too too rarefied too identified too believing it personally makes me nervous. It, it sits wrong with me. Uh, alarm bells go off for me. Um, if we just linger on this a little bit, um, someone might have, perhaps I, you know, may, may have had, um, or someone might have had an image of performing something or other in front of large crowds, maybe it's music or whatever it is, and there's this um, sense, and it's really gripping, uh, the image is, is beautiful and all that. But it's still worth asking with these kinds of things, you know, what is it that's, if you like, if we use these words, what is it that's essential to the image? So is it, for example, if if that's an image, I'm performing music in front of large crowds or whatever, um, is it the size of the crowd, the numbers, the amount of people in the audience that's actually essential to the image? Now, now it might be. It might be, as, as Diana said, I, I feel like I'm going to be in the public eye, or whatever, however exactly she phrased it. Um, a lot of people are going to be looking at me. I'm under scrutiny from a lot of people, something like that. So it might be that the numbers are somehow essential to the image, but it's still worth asking, because they might have nothing to do with it. And actually it's something quite else that's sort of more essential and more meaningful. It's more the core of the divinity and the beauty and the duty in that image. So again, opening up the conversation, hopefully, the discourse, the questioning, the allowing of pondering, of uh, reflecting on, uh, considering certain possibilities. Um, at the same time as expressing, I think, a healthy caution with all this. So to me, signals that one is on the right track are humility. Humility, um, reverence, um, duty, but a duty to whom and to what? Something of um, that to which we are reverent to and humble before. That's what we have the duty toward. It's not separate from ourselves, But it's larger. It goes in those dimensionalities and divinity. The image, the imaginal figure, if that's what we're talking about, it's me and it's not me. And it's, it's in that kind of middle way, me and not me. That, that some of the, um, the graciousness with all this, the fluidity, the, the flexibility, the non-rigidity with all this uh, comes, is able to come in.
and that's a signal too that it's not so rigid in terms of what actually transpires and there's a sense in the reverence in the humility in, in the duty of, of also of unfathomability that's part of it that's part also so it's not so narrowed kind of laterally but also um, if you like vertically Another thing I'd like to throw in now, it's quite, a, it's quite unusual, I'm not quite sure how to say it, but um, there's something in imaginal perception that carries with it a kind of impossibility, the impossibility of a complete material manifestation, the impossibility of a perfect replication of that image in one's life. So the Oftentimes, imaginal figures carry this kind of impossibility with them. And in regard to that, there's going to be then some dukkha um, in, in the manifestation of whatever it is in my life that echoes or mirrors that image. Why? Because it's impossible to completely um, manifest that image. So this has echoes of, of, of uh, perhaps or, or analogies to, to what... Hillman's getting at. There's some dukkha related to um, soul-making work. Some dukkha related to, let's say, some dukkha related to imaginal work. And part of it's in the impossibility. Some level that it's impossible to to, uh, completely manifest or, or perfectly replicate the image in one's life. So that what manifests is always less than, is always an Im- Im- imperfect replication, if it's a, or imperfect refraction of. It's also impossible, and I've mentioned this in previous talks, I can't remember where it was, it might have been in the path of the imaginal, I don't remember, it might have been in Reenchanting the Cosmos or both. Um, but there's also another kind of impos- impossibility with regard to imaginal figures, and that's the impossibility to do, to manifest um, everything that all the many angels and demons require of you, of me. In other words, um, we are complex. The psyche is complex. We don't have just one imaginal figure calling us. We have we have many, and they move in different directions. And often they have quite opposing styles, wishes, desires, um, movements, expressions, um, kind of value systems, etc. And if one begins to realize, oh, I am um, in a kind of, uh, again, to borrow from Hillman, what, what, what we say, a kind of polytheistic um, situation here, many angels, many daemons come to me, ask of me, I have a duty to many of them, um, and I cannot possibly do it all, and I certainly cannot possibly do it all at the same time. So again, if I share for me, there is a monk and there's a musician, to name just two. And I can't, I certainly can't be a monk and a musician at the same time, certainly not in the Theravadan tradition. Um, they, or, or rather the degree of kind of intensity and passion and devotion which each one asks for in their purity of their um, archetypal styles, 
for me. Um, you can't do both. Either you're going to devote yourself to one or the other. Um, or, as uh, many people have shared similar things, I feel drawn to be a nun, but I'm an artist, etc. And there's the tendency there to want to um, to, to just look, lock into a kind of reified view, a realist view. Either I'm going to be a nun, or I'm going to be an artist, or I'm going to live on retreat, or I'm going to devote my time to, to making art and, and being busy in the, in the world of art, trying to make a living that way. But all this, when, once we once we kind of um, realize that this is our situation, there's a there's a, a, a polytheism of angels and de- demons for 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 many of us, let's say, for most of us, I think, um, and we can't possibly. They have conflicting demands and directions, and we can't possibly do it all at the same time. We can't possibly manifest or express or commit to all of them at once in our life. So there's a kind of um, dukkha in that. There's the 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 sadness, the grief, even. I wish I was these these callings that I have, these passions that I have, these images that speak to me so beautifully. I wish I was able to kind of fulfil them both in manifestation, expression, in dedication, in material manifestation. I wish I was able to do them both at once. Maybe one has peers in one's life as as I have, or. Um, but still, there's this, oh, you know, it's got it's got some dukkha with. This is, by the way, related to something I want to come back to regarding values and the way that um, values that are important to us um, also often conflict, are impossible to, to manifest and bring into being or chase at the same time. That's what's called uh, antin- antinomies in, in values. I'll come back to that in another talk. But what this means is, uh, when I realize the polytheism there and the sort of conflicting duties, if you like, and pulls and beauties there, um, in my let's call it pantheon of Im- imaginal figures of demons and angels, then I realize I can't possibly reify too much. I can't possibly over-identify too much. I am this and I am that. And this and that don't really kind of um, go together. I can't possibly manifest them together. So seeing this, acknowledging it, opening out to that view of the wider complexity and and polytheistic kind of landscape of our psyche um, also helps, allows us to reify less, identify less with regard to imaginal figures. And so less dukkha. in the points I've just made is also um, another element that again I've touched on before so we'll just re uh, remind us of now is that where there's eros um, it will create and discover or create slash discover um, it will always create discover more beyond it will create something transcendent something beyond to what I already know, already have manifested, already am inhabiting, already am um, familiar with. Um, Something transcendent, not, um, as far as sensing with soul is concerned, not um, beyond the uh, perception, the 
sensing, but in and through. Eros always will create and find a way to create and or discover more, more beyond. And so, uh, it's really good to know that. Um, so, there is, we could say, because of that, There's all that's related to the pothos in the Eros and the kind of longing. So it has this tonality, if you like, this uh, flavor of some degree, if you like, of dukkha, or at least potential for dukkha, in the beyondness, in the not-yetness, in the wanting more, not quite satisfied. We're saying, rather than that's all just tanha and useless and craving and brings, uh, you know, samsara, we're saying, ah, no, with the eros, there's the possibility of beauty and discovery and creation of divinity and all the soul-making, etc. But it because it has this beyond not yetness, not yetness to it, there can be the, um, the slight flavor of dukkha there, wrapped up in that, in in that, in in the eros, in the movement of eros. But again, as we've as we've uh, emphasized in in this series of talks, recognizing or noticing or paying attention to this this aspect, the beyondness aspect of the imaginal. Um, knowing that that will be there because of the eros, um, r- noticing it, tuning into it, will um, allow the whole thing to become more imaginal. So this attention, noticing this node in the imaginal constellation, in the, in the lattice or whatever we were calling it, um, illumines that node, and then that illumines, ignites the whole uh, constellation of the imaginal. And then, and then, that brings with it, it's obviously not real, because we. one of the other nodes that is ignited is, is the sense of theatre or middle way. And rather, it's divine. Uh, the divinity also uh, shows itself. So it's not necessarily easy when we feel um, the dukkha of wanting more, or we feel we're a bit stuck on wanting something. Um, but... If we can uh, notice that beyond aspect, recognize that it's part of what happens with Eros, let that ignite uh, more and let that ignite the whole imaginal uh, constellation, whole imaginal perception, then there's more ease because we realize it's not real, we cling less and there's more beauty and divinity. Not necessarily easy, but definitely possible. And so there's a a loosening of uh, any tight craving or... um, the, the, the grip of, of kind of too much grasping, and so less dukkha. <clears throat> Another way of approaching what we've just said is to um, say that in the experience of the imaginal, um, in the experience of sensing with soul, we can, if you like, um, investigate uh who is it both the object and the subject who am i now who is this now what am i now what is this now that is in relationship in the sensing with soul and that investigation is with eros with um the sensing with soul with soul making uh, with the imaginal it's not a deconstructive or reductionist investigation which would just um kind of 
inhibit or drain the life out of the whole sensing the soul. But in investigating who or what, again, the, um, the, we expand into the beyond, both of the object and also of the self, of the subject. They become more imaginal. The imaginal middle way opens up. It's obvious that this what, that I perhaps am uh, feeling dukkha with because I'm grasping too much at wanting uh, it or, or, or something or other, some kind of grasping, there's some kind of dukkha there. It becomes clear in the imaginal way. It's w- what it is and what I am is is neither real nor not real. It's got that theatre element. It's got the dimensionality to it, and it's got the divinity. So that what this is that I may be stuck on is the divine and has the unfathomability of the divine. It's more than what I took it to be at first blush, or from the perspective of of the view of craving, the view that I was in when there was a lot of craving. So, with the opening up of the middle way, with the dimensionality and divinity comes that comes, there is again a lessening of identification and reduction, and a lessening of dukkha. Again, all, all these um, <clears throat> pieces that I'm talking about, or angles that I'm talking about, are, are related, and you can, with a little pondering, you can see that. But another um, really important uh, piece to bear in mind here is that element that we talked about in the first talk: the fullness of intention um, that helps make something. Uh, fully imaginal, authentically imaginal. This fullness of intention will help with the equanimity. And where there's equanimity, there's a decrease of dukkha. So where the intention is fuller, um, in other words, where we're not um, shrinking what the object is or what we're what we're after in in our connection with the object, where we're not shrinking it or getting caught up in craving for this object. Um, When the intention is actually fuller, and we realize, oh, my my deeper, fuller intention is for soul-making, for the whole of soul-making. It's not for this object as I immediately perceive it. It's not for any smaller element. So again, this this can happen. We might start off with a sensing with soul, and then eros actually, if we're not careful, can shrink to craving, and then that shrinks the perception and the intention shrinks, and all all of these factors. So we're in a dynamic situation whenever we're sensing with soul, and it's possible that we start with the erotic imaginal, and there's all this beauty and loveliness, and if we're not careful, it shrinks to craving with a shrinking of intention and shrinking of um, perception, all kinds of things. But having or opening up to that, reminding ourselves of a fullness of intention, it's like um, planting deep roots. Um, And like a tree that has deep roots, it will be stable in the winds. So there's something really, really important about reminding ourselves or aligning or dwelling with the intention or opening up the intention when we're engaged in this work. And that's one way of... um, 
relieving some dukkha that might have crept in through some kind of cramping or grasping or shrinking of either of intention or of craving or reification or something or other. So we remind ourselves or we realize in fact that our that what we really love what we're really wishing for yearning for and intending for is is the whole of soul making so it's not just um the excitement of imaginal perception or eros that I'm after or the sense of aliveness or the sense of juiciness or um, delight or some kind of pleasure or thrill. Um, It's not, as I said, just the object in its kind of um, very tightly circumscribed, delimited form without those soft boundaries, soft edges and unfathomability that we we, uh, talked about. That the intention's bigger than just just for that, nor is it just for eros, nor is it just for image images psyche, if you like in the small sense of psyche, um, but the intention can be, and I would say it is in the soul's deeper intention anyway, so it's something we realize or we connect with an intention that's already existing in the soul. might be dormant, might be hidden, we might not consciously realize, but we connect with that. The intention is for the whole of soul-making. That means for the sense of dimensionality, for the sense of divinity, the opening up of sacredness, for the sense of meaningfulness, etc., that whole uh, list of aspects and elements that we outlined. And, included in the whole of soul-making, our intention, our direction, our longing, our yearning, is also for logos. Remember, if we talk about soul-making dynamic, the three principal elements of that are eros, psyche, and logos. um, Which means also for conceptual framework. So, I'm hungry for this. My intention is also to do with logos and to do with conceptual framework. So sometimes it's very understandable, uh, given our culture and also given given the kind of excitement of some of this stuff um, that can that can be there at times. Sometimes um, we just find ourselves kind of we just want to extend or intensify um, the eros or the image or images we're having in the smaller sense without kind of um, recognizing the larger soul-making movement that is. Um, happening or or can potentially happen so that where we want to kind of yeah extend or intensify the eros and the psyche and the feeling of that and we're we're less interested in the logos less interested in the conceptual frameworks or the ideas operating or the possibilities there but what is it if we um, align remind or connect with realize that our deepest passion and commitment, or the deepest passion and commitment of the soul, the deepest love and desire and longing of the soul, is for the whole of soul-making. The deepest uh, commitment of the soul is to soul. And that's that's the fullness of intention, so we can reconnect with that. But if we just emphasize this logos, because for a lot of people, 
that may be the piece that's missing. Of course, that could be the um, overly focused on piece at the expense of other other elements, for instance, body or energy body or whatever. But um, but oftentimes it's the logos. Um, so if we would say, well, what would that look like to, to, to consciously include that? Oh, it's the whole of soul makers. So that includes, what does that include? Oh, and the piece of that includes logos. So that means curiosity. But perhaps it means curiosity about, about, about what is happening in my experience and why it's happening. And, uh, and the dependent arising of all that, or the factors that feed or starve or squash or ignite or whatever. Um, a curiosity regarding conceptual frameworks and their effects that we've talked about. So again, if I go back to that, um, I can't remember a few talks, I talked about the different fantasies of the path, and one of them I was calling, I think, the researcher fantasy. Um, but that kind of fancy, fantasy of um, experimenting in practice and being interested in the results of trying this and trying that. What happens if I do that? What happens if I lean this way? What happens if I emphasize that? What happens if I bring this into awareness? But that inhabiting that fantasy, um, it will bring with it, I think, a certain amount of equanimity in regard to the actual experiences that are happening. Because I'm less taken with the experience um, and I'm I'm, if you like, more interested in why is this happening and how does this all fit together and hmm, what's there to understand here and what's the conceptual framework that might be emerging and um, I wonder what happens if X or Y. So some people, you know, if you know um, the Enneagram um, personality types, um, some people say, oh, that researcher fantasy, that's that's like a number five and they tend to be a bit aloof or distant. Um, I'm not sure whether it necessarily implies that. Um, I have my reservations about um, uh, personality typology, psychologies anyway. But, but in this case, I don't, I don't necessarily think that um, the researcher fancy imp- brings equanimity through, through a sort of standing back, crossing one's arms and sort of a, a more aloof, uninvolved noticing of what's happening. I w- I would say it could actually bring more equanimity because it brings, as I said, more roots in terms of an enlargening of what one's commitments are. Now I have the root of logos as well, uh, or the root of the intention for the investigation of logos and conceptual framework as an additional root, making me more stable. And also, I have an additional thread or strand um, of intimacy with whatever is going on. Because it's like, the intimacy between me and um, whatever or whoever I'm sensing with soul now has that extra facet, extra strand of intimacy in and through the logos, in and through uh, conception. This applies also to human beings, that some of the intimacy, and certainly the soul-making intimacy that that, um, can flow between human beings is prevented or supported or enlarged that intimacy um, dependent on um, or, or, or through the logos that might be shared. In other words, we can be intimate also through logos. So as well as body, as well as energy, as well as psychically, as well as heartfully. There's also a kind of being intimate um, through and in logos. But certainly in terms of what's happening 
um, when one's sensing the soul. The researcher fancies one way where there's dukkha and a bit of instability, actually bringing in more of that researcher fancy, for some people, can bring more equanimity and thus less dukkha into the whole process. But the larger point is about the, the, the fullness of intention, reminding ourselves, refinding that, reopening to it, um, realizing that that's actually what we really want when we're wanting. It's not this or that person, it's not this or that thing manifesting. What the soul most deeply wants is soul-making and the fullness of soul-making, everything that that means. And again, tied in with all this, or connected, uh, dukkha decreases when, uh, or if, um, or put it this way, dukkha increases, as I said, if if eros becomes craving, or shrinks to craving, dukkha, dukkha increases, no doubt about it. Craving goes with dukkha, dukkha goes with craving. But if the eros can be maintained as eros and not shrink into craving, then there w- there won't be uh, dukkha coming into the experience. There be, definitely, there'll be a big reduction in the dukkha coming into the sensing with soul, into the imaginal experience. And certainly, if if any craving there can be um, alchemically transformed into eros, which is very possible, we've talked about this before. Uh, on other retreats, then that conversion of craving to eros um, alleviates dukkha. It would drain um, quite a lot of the dukkha out of the experience. Then one way, uh, I'm not going to go into all the different ways, but one way we talked about was, um, for instance, including more of the energy body awareness. And the whole energy body allows craving to uh, manifest more as eros shrinking of the bodily awareness to one part or whatever uh, tends to um, go with craving. And we, and again I'm not going to repeat it because we've talked a lot about it before, but um, eros, unlike craving, eros opens. It opens the sense of dimensionalities, it opens a sense of divinity and divinity in um, potentially infinite forms or faces, infinite possibilities of particular theophanies rather than just universal kind of um, I was going to say prefab but run-of-the-mill if you like uh, versions of divinity of universal divinity Eros opens uh, creates and discovers richnesses and um, facets of what we're sensing with soul opens up the sense of beauty, the possibility still of expression and individual expression, the creation and discovery of all of that. Um, essentially, Eros goes with and opens up and leads to and stimulates and supports soul-making and sensing the soul. Craving does not. And, and I'm, I'm not going to go into all that because we've dwelt quite a lot on it in past retreats. Um, and we've also said, you know, we've we've put out uh, quite a few teachings, but when the eros can be very strong, can be very, very subtle, and can also be very strong at times, <clears throat> and, you know, it's part of the possible maturing to learn how gradually to say, ride that eros or handle it or respond to it, to modulate it sometimes. 
um, and that's the, the different um, approaches that are possible they're really really useful and uh, part of the developing art and never forgetting there's always the possibility in which we should never lose sight of the possibility of hey just let go just cut something just drop it for now um, and uh, simplify and let let the image go let the eros go um, so there's that possibility too <coughs> when there's dukkha there um, because the eros feels like too strong Um, in relation to Eros, let me read you something by uh, the poet W.H. Auden. I can't remember where this is from. Someone sent it to me. I, I uh, neglected to ask them where it was from, uh, exactly which of his writings. But I'll, I'll read you this small, short quote from W.H. Auden, the poet. <clears throat> when someone begins to lose the glamour they had for us on our first meeting them, we tell ourselves that we have been deceived, that our fantasy cast a halo over them, which they are unworthy to bear. It is always possible, however, that the reverse is the case, that our disappointment is due to a failure of our own sensibility, which lacks the strength to maintain itself at the acuteness with which it began. People may really be what we first thought them, and what we subsequently think of the disappointing reality may be the person obscured oh, sorry and what we subsequently think of as the disappointing reality may be the person obscured by the staleness of our senses the vision of eros is in my opinion a religious vision it is an indirect manifestation of the glory of the personal creator through a personal creature so you can see a lot of similarities with the kinds of ways we're <coughs> presenting things um, and some differences too. But um, it is always possible, however, that our disappointment is due to a failure of our own sensibility which lacks the strength to maintain itself at the acuteness with which it began. In... You understand? So in terms of dukkha, if we put it in, in the framework of dukkha, people think, I had, I fell in love with this person when I first met them. They looked so wonderful, so angelic. and da, da, da. That's how I sensed them. Then after a while, we sense, ah, they're actually just a schmuck like everyone else. And we say, uh, Eros was, uh, it was a projection when I fell in love. It was um, a delusion. It was my wishful thinking. It was etc., etc. It was my grasping, my craving. Um, Auden is is in in that little short quote there. He's really saying no. Eros is uh, helps us to see reality. It's only through eros that we perceive what is real about this person. And because eros and the kind of acuity and sensitivity of soul and of um, sensing that that demands of us is kind of too much for us to, to sustain. We're not practiced at it. We're not given the encouragement. It's hard work. Then our initial sensing of this person, thing, or whatever slips to something more ordinary, more commonly agreed on, more flat, etc., less holy. Um, and he's saying, uh, actually, eros is, if you like, uh, the mode of being or the lens through which we perceive and we sense what is real. 
Um, so there's one kind of ontology, if you like, wrapped up uh, in, in how he's saying that, in what he's saying. <coughs> and um, I really want to open up that that as a possibility for ontology. So I'm back to the ontological questions now and the kind of pondering and thinking out loud. So one position is kind of more in line with what we just heard Auden Wright say. An alternative ontology is that Eros, Eros, as we said, stimulates and supports and opens and ignites soul-making in the ways that we, we are talking about what soul-making means. And that's actually the intention, is for soul-making. Um, that's what the soul wants. So it's not for this object or for the, a sense of excitement or aliveness or pleasure or whatever. Um, but it's not for this object, uh, if you like, alone or in itself, somehow separated from the whole, uh, in its whole involvement uh, in soul making, not separate from the whole vortex of soul making and the whole imaginal constellation that opens up with sensing the soul. There is this um, elasticity and softness of edges of the object, and in that, in that elasticity, in the softness of edges, is where we sense the potential for soul-making and the actuality of soul-making and that expansion of the object. And that's what the intention is. But in terms of the alternative ontology, that what's happening here is rather than Eros showing us the real, um, this person, this object, this thing, this world, I, whatever, I'm actually like that, really. That's one um, viable ontology, we might say. Um, very much at odds with the dominant worldview at the moment. An alternative ontology was is that Eros brings soul-making, and in soul-making there's this, at least in the way that we're talking about it, there's this recognition. In the bringing of soul-making, there's the recognizing of, if you like, the truth of participation in perception, the truth of the participatory nature of perception. So that rather than a kind of... Um, simple reality one un- is inducted in or recognizes in the process of soul-making uh, a, a truth or a reality of a more participatory nature of reality, if you like, of perception. <clears throat> so, w- regarding the perceptions and the senses of things that arise um, in and through the erotic imaginal, we could actually, for now, uh, and again, it's just something I want to throw out there to open up the discussion, to think out loud, we could actually delineate a kind of um, rough uh, spectrum of ontologies regarding the perceptions that arise through the erotic imaginal, through eros and through sensing the soul. So at one end, and um, perhaps this is the dominant, uh, could say, modern, modernist cultural view. Um, one end of the spectrum of ontology is of ways of thinking about the reality or non-reality of what's going on there in, in this sensing with soul. At one end, it, we could say, I create something unreal. That image or that sense of things, I have just created my mind, my neurology, whatever, has created something unreal. It's just unreal in the in a very simplistic sense that that um, we would say um, 
most of modern culture conceives of reality and unreality. A second view, or rather at the other end of the spectrum, we could say um, in imaginal perception, in sensing the soul, in through eros, I discover the real. So that may be something more akin to what Auden is saying. So there's at one end, I'm creating something unreal. At the other end, I'm discovering what is real. In between, there are two, t- to me, um, more interesting and um, I think more more philosophically viable positions. Um, well, actually, I think the whole thing's interesting and, and viable. But anyway, um, it the second position. So, if you like, moving along from the I create something unreal. Then there's um, a position that would say um, there's no there's nothing real out there. Um, there are just mental projections. Matter is just a, a play of awareness. Um, uh, this is all just mind only. There's nothing, so to speak, out there but the, the play of awareness and the projection of consciousness or whatever. So therefore, in imaginal, proje- in imaginal perception, I am just creating freely, um, perhaps at the, um, at the whim of soul, uh, directed by soul, um, or directed just by my will in terms of adopting this or that way of looking. Um, there's nothing really real out there. It's all just uh, mental projection, mind out there. A third view um, on this spectrum of ontologies is what we might call the participatory view, a little harder to explain, as I said before, a little more mysterious. Um, but in that in that ontology... <clears throat> the self, I, uh, I who am sensing this or that with soul, or sensing in this or that way with soul, I, the thing that I am sensing, the other, the object, the world, matter, mind, and divinity, all of those elements, me, the object, the world, the matter, the mind, and divinity, the mind, and the will, and in its perception and perceiving and ways of looking and its awareness, all of that is not separate. They all participate in each other. Can you enter into a kind of contemplative pondering of what that might mean and what that might do to the whole sense of ontology here and the possibilities of ontology? for an epistemology regarding sensing the soul. I, self, other, world, matter, mind, divinity, none of that is separate. Nor is it all just one thing. They all participate in each other. But I say, really what I want to do is not so much give answers and insist on it's this way or that way, but open up possibilities for more create, creation and discovery, for pondering, for reflection, and for elbowing some room um, regarding the ontological and epistemological bases for sensing the soul, and those kind of uh, perceptions. could also perhaps ponder and think through what kinds of suffering or what 
possible ways of suffering and what kind of soul-making are made possible or prevented um, through any of these different ontologies. So if we say, this is what Eros, this is what's happening with Eros in terms of its effect on perception and what kind of uh, conception of reality is happening with erotic imaginal perception. Uh, what do each of those possibilities um, deliver for the soul and in terms of dukkha, as that's the subject that we're talking about? I want to say a little bit <coughs> more about eros and fire in the next, uh, hopefully in the next part. So we'll come back to that, but let's uh, let's stop there for now. <coughs>